If you joined us last week, you know that we've moved on into a new section of John's Gospel, commonly referred to as his farewell discourse, where he is actively preparing his followers, his disciples especially, for his departure, and it's coming very soon. He's in the very last days of his earthly life. Last week we looked at Jesus' words about preparing a place for his followers to be with him in the Father's house. That place had to be prepared because we don't belong there. We don't naturally or automatically have a place there as rebels and enemies. We also saw how Jesus is preparing his followers, how he's preparing us for heaven, because we're not ready. And we're actually continuing this week with some of that preparation, how we're being made ready for heaven. Now, if you will notice, the disciples, they didn't go with Jesus. They didn't go with Jesus to the cross. They didn't go with him to the grave, nor to heaven when he ascended. They stayed behind, some of them for a very long time. And if you will notice that when you placed your faith in Christ, if you have, you didn't go anywhere either. You're still here. Terra firma. I thought about telling you to reach over and pinch your neighbor, but then I thought about my children sitting right here, and I said, nope, bad idea. Not going to do that. But you're still here. Why is that? You're still here. What is it that you're supposed to be doing? Our verses this week, which again are just a a continuation from last week. This, This is all one big, huge teaching session that Jesus is giving to his disciples and by extension to us. These verses, more about how we're being prepared, what we're to be about for the rest of our days until we're taken to be with Jesus in the Father's house. If you're able, I'd like you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. These are the very words of God. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. Jesus, you promise right here 
that you will do anything asked in your name to bring glory to your Father. And so what we're asking for right now is that you would use this powerful word in our lives, in our hearts especially, that you would reveal more of yourself to us, that you would conform more of us to you, that you'd make us ready for these greater works that you mentioned. Would you do all of these things? We are asking it in your name. We are asking it that the Father might be glorified in you when you answer these prayers that we're asking. Amen. Please be seated. So if we don't instantly go to be with Jesus, what's on the agenda for us? What's supposed to be going on with us for the rest of our days? There's an outline in the worship guide for you. Five things from these verses that I see. There's a fair amount of overlap, especially between the first two. Um, so I'm always talking about John Calvin, his, his, perhaps his magnum opus, what he's most known for, though I use his commentaries on books of the Bible much more often. What he's most known for is this massive four-volume work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. My translation of it that I use has 1,600 pages. It's huge. But he begins that massive work saying that of all the wisdom we could possess, knowledge of God and knowledge of self surpasses them all. There is nothing more worthy of our pursuit than the knowledge of God Almighty. Read through the scriptures. See how frequently we are commanded to know our God. Uh, Psalm 100, very famous psalm. Right in the middle of that psalm, verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. Psalm 46, a psalm many of us have been turning to in these sort of chaotic and confusing days, looking for our refuge and our strength. Very famous verse at the end there, Psalm 46.10. Be still and know. All throughout Scripture, knowledge of God is so vital. It is indeed life-giving. And so a question right off the bat, guys, is that your hunger? Is that a growing and a deepening hunger in your soul and in your heart? Is that your passionate pursuit as you read the pages of Scripture each day? Knowing God is where we begin in these verses today. It's where we begin on this agenda for the rest of our days. Knowing God. But we begin in these verses, unfortunately, with a deficiency in knowledge. Look at verse 7. If you had known. Uh Uh-oh. But this is the struggle, the ongoing struggle we've seen throughout this gospel. Folks having a hard time knowing who Jesus is. And what John has been pointing out along the way is that if you don't know who Jesus is, well, that's proof that you really didn't know God like you thought you did. 
To see if you really knew the Father, then you would know and receive the Son that he sends. Jesus makes that exact link in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known the Father too. But hopefully, thankfully, Jesus continues. And he's trying to press home a reality. He's pushing his disciples to see something that so far has slipped right through their grasp. From now on. That that word could also be translated assuredly or certainly. Maybe some of your translations do that. Certainly you do know him. And certainly you have seen him, whether you realize it or not. Whether you realize it or not, he's telling his disciples, you have seen God. I'm standing right in front of your eyes. But of course they haven't realized that yet. Thus Philip's ignorant and rather foolish request. Verse 8. Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough. We'll be satisfied then if you would just do that for us. He would just show us the Father. Um, you can hear the sadness, can't you? The, the exasperation in Jesus' voice. He's so kind with Philip. He gently rebukes him. Verse 9, he says, Have I been with you so long, so long, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And Philip, again, is just a representative here. None of the other disciples pipe up and say, oh, no, Philip, you got it it all wrong. Don't you remember? None of them do that. Their knowledge is just as deficient as Philip's, which begs the question, why? Why, after all this time, After all they've seen and experienced, why do they still not know? Saw two different reasons suggested by two different commentators that I was reading, and I think they're both right. One pointed out that they don't yet have the Holy Spirit to help them connect the dots, make these Connections. They, they don't have the Spirit's illumining power to help overcome their human, fallen inabilities to process this and understand this. They're not yet privy to the whole story like we are either. It's easy for us at times to be kind of hard on the disciples, I think. To, to read their foolish unbelief, it just jumps off the page at us, and we think, gosh, what a bunch of blockheads. But if we know Christ, we already have the Spirit. He's indwelling, He's helping, He's counseling. And we have the, the finished and the complete Word of God that's at His disposal to help us, helping us to know God more and more. Now, the other suggestion for Philip's deficiency and the rest of their deficiency came from Calvin. And it took me a minute when I read it. He said, what's at the base of all this is ingratitude. And I, I, again, I had to think about that for a minute. But look at verse 8. Philip's request. 
Show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. Show us the Father, and that will be enough. So what's implied here is what they've gotten so far isn't enough. They're not satisfied with what they've received so far. They find it lacking. Their expectations have not been met. They've not been sufficiently wowed by Jesus. And that is staggering if you think about it. If you think about all they've seen and heard. But you know what? It goes right along with what the prophet Isaiah foretold. If you think about Isaiah 53 where Isaiah is describing Messiah as a suffering servant who's going to come. And he's going to come in a way that defies expectation. Uh, Just a couple of verses. Verses 2 and 3 out of chapter 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He wasn't the knight in shining armor that they had expected or hoped for. And their lack of gratitude for what they saw was a hindrance To their fully knowing who he was. Now, I don't want to stretch this too far. I don't want to take liberties here that I shouldn't, but I think that we are plagued by something similar today. Our knowledge of God is often deficient because our expectations aren't always met. God has chosen to use some pretty ordinary things, some pretty plain means of revealing himself to us. You mean, I'm just supposed to keep reading this book, and that's how I'll know him more? Uh, yeah. You mean, I'm just supposed to keep regularly assembling with God's people in God's house to... Worship to hear his book read and preached and to sing the truths contained therein. And that's how I come to know God? Uh, yeah. But what if that doesn't give me goosebumps? What if I don't get that warm, tingly feeling? What if my emotions aren't stirred? What if... What if I don't have some flashy experience that I had been expecting or craving? Are you asking for those things? Are you expecting those things? Saying in your heart, if I get those, that'll be enough. Jesus was revealing the Father to the disciples all along, right there under their noses but they couldn't see it. And their ingratitude, their faulty expectations may very well have kept them from seeing and knowing. It very well may keep us from seeing and knowing. 
Let's shift to the second point. This isn't merely an intellectual exercise of knowing God. It goes beyond that. It goes deeper. And and you'll notice Jesus shifts from using the language of knowing to the language of, of believing. And I don't think there's a huge difference here. There's a lot of overlap. But what I do see Jesus doing here, I think he's laying the groundwork. He's getting folks ready. Leading up to Trinitarian belief and understanding. See, he's he's driving home the unity of Father and Son here. And we'll see next week as we move along in this, we're going to see the Spirit layered on top of that. It's it's like you've got to see that, that two are one before you see that three are one. Before you get to this full understanding of God in three persons, blessed Trinity. So look at verses 10 and 11. What, what's, he, what's he doing here? Jesus is saying, all right, look guys, you, you've been seeing the Father this whole time. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words, the very words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. That's interesting. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, none of this is new for this gospel. It's not new information, but it's being driven home again and again. There's a a mutual indwelling here. Jesus in the Father. The Father in Jesus. It is a complete unity. And and not just of, of purposes and plans. It's not just that they want the same things or are trying to do the same things. This is a unity of of being. They are of the very same essence, the same divinity. Our, our catechism uh, has a question about the, the Trinity, and it says that the persons in the Trinity are equal in power and glory. They are in each other and yet distinct from each other. It is, it is an absolute unity. This absolute unity between Father and Son, and later we'll add the Spirit to that as well, but between Father and Son, this, this unity guarantees, this unity enables the Son to perfectly reveal the Father to us. So that what we see in Jesus is a perfect reflection of who God is. That's what the writer of the Hebrews said. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is what Jesus said we must believe. Uh, and if not just simply because he said it, then please believe it on account of that he's proven it and what he's done. Remember we're in the Gospel of John which records all these wonderful signs, these, uh, these miraculous works with a purpose. Designed to show, to demonstrate that he is indeed the Christ sent from God, who himself is God, who's taken on flesh. Now, an interesting thing happens. Again, we're working on our agenda. What are we to be up to for the rest of our days? For those who actually believe this, for the rest of our days, we're given purpose and we're sent out on mission. We'll be doing the very same works that Jesus did. Look back at verse 10. When Jesus speaks, he speaks not his own words. 
but words the Father has given him. We've seen that previously, plenty of times in John. And when Jesus speaks, see, you would expect this to be a parallel thing. Would Jesus say, now, the words that I speak aren't, aren't, aren't my own authority, but when I speak, you would expect him to say, God is speaking. But he doesn't. He says, when I speak, God is working. That's this absolute unity at work, this mutual indwelling. The words come out of Jesus' mouth and God God the Father is doing his work. But the really amazing thing is that when we believe that the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son, then we do the works that Jesus does. Can you believe that? Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now, this is super important. You've got to note the order here. It is the belief. It is the faith that precedes and produces the works. We believe, we trust, And therefore we labor. We place our trust in Christ, resting in his finished sacrifice as our substitute on the cross. We find forgiveness and love and acceptance. And then we find ourselves obeying and working and laboring, not the other way around. We work out of our acceptance, not for our acceptance. And that's big. And you can never reverse the order of those. But I also want you to follow this as well. And I've hinted at it already. What are the works that Jesus does? Verse 10. They're the words that he speaks. When Jesus speaks, the Father works. So, if we're going to do the same works that Jesus does... We'll be speaking his words. So here's your homework for the rest of your days, because it will take that long. When you read, pay close attention to what types of things Jesus says. I'm going to give you a few to get you started. A few recurring themes that you'll see again and again and again. We're in Luke right now. Luke's a great place to be looking. All right, what types of things is Jesus saying? Because if I'm going to do the same works that he's doing, I'm going to be saying similar words to what he said. Similar themes. Here's one. Jesus is always speaking words that show people their need. That reveal to people their inadequacy. Now, That sounds kind of mean. We would want to be careful how we do that, but when Jesus does it, it's actually very gracious. He wants people to see that their law-keeping and their obedience isn't all they think it is. They think they've kept the entire Torah when in reality they've broken all Ten Commandments. He's always revealing need. Uh, Second thing. He's always talking about how upside down the kingdom is. We saw this in what Sam read earlier. He who tries to be first, going to be last. He who tries to save his life, going to lose it. Jesus didn't come for the elite and the upstanding. He came for the broken 
and the lost. This kingdom is upside down. It's counterintuitive. Third thing, similarly, he's always speaking grace and hope and comfort to those who are on the margins, to those who've been oppressed, ostracized, outcast, to those who've been shunned by the elite and the in crowd. Those are Jesus' people. And he's got a fond, fond affection for them. Uh, here's, Here's one last one. There are many more. Another theme that you see is that the words of Jesus are very anti-religiosity. Going through the motions, checking the box, putting on a show. Jesus wants none of it. He sees right through it. Folks, if we're going to be doing the same works that Jesus does, Speaking words that the Father works through, there'll be those kinds of words. I hope that you'll find more and more of them in the Scriptures. Now, that's just the first half of verse 12. We'll be doing the same works that Jesus does. The second half is a bombshell. Not only will we do the same works Jesus does if we believe, we'll actually do greater works than he did. For the rest of our days, we'll be surpassing what Jesus did. How in the world does that work? How can that be? That is mind-blowing. And it's given rise to lots of speculation, lots and lots of pages and commentaries have been written, people trying to figure it out. But the clue, the key to unlock this is right there in verse 12. Right? We, those who believe, will do greater works because, always look for those purpose words, Here's the reason. We'll do greater works because Jesus is going to the Father. That's the reason right there. We've already talked about Jesus going to the Father. He goes to the Father by means of the cross. He's going to die, and then he will rise again and ascend into heaven. The greater works are ultimately related to Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. You see, when we speak Jesus' words, we have the whole, complete story to tell, start to finish. There's nothing left in the balance, no details still to unfold, except for some of that stuff in Revelation. But we know how the story ends. We know who the victorious conqueror is. Imagine the hope and the confidence that you and I have that the very first Christians and the disciples didn't. They didn't have all of this that we have at their disposal, at their fingertips. Now, some folks really get hung up on this greater works thing, and they just can't figure it out, and they're, oh, I just don't understand. How could something that I do be greater than what Jesus did? And if that's you then you've kind of gotten off on the wrong track. Because this is not about what I do contrasted with what Jesus does. What this is is what Jesus did while he was still on earth and what Jesus continues to do while he's in heaven and he's just doing it through me. We ain't doing nothing. Jesus did things in the person, in person. Jesus does things now 
from heaven through us. That's the contrast. We're not doing anything apart from him, which leads to our final point. Depending. For the rest of our days, living lives of dependence. We're calling out to Jesus for help. Now, verses 13 and 14 are surely among the most abused and misunderstood verses in the Bible. And one of the first things that happens when a verse is abused or misused is it is lifted out of its immediate context. So what's the context here? What has Jesus been talking about when he mentions verse 13, 14? He's been talking about doing the works that Jesus did. So that's our first clue. Second clue is that we're asking for help in his name. Now, what exactly does that mean? To to pray, to ask something in Jesus' name. We tack it on at the end of our prayers. You know, it just rolls out. Maybe even without thinking about it. But what exactly does it mean? How do you do it? Well, for starters, praying, asking for something in Jesus' name is not a magical incantation. Right? It's not like adding open sesame to the end of your prayer. No, a name in ancient cultures, more so than ours, meant something. It stood for something. It, it represented the totality of the person, their character, their, their body of work, the things that they had accomplished. Their name stood for all that the person was. So asking in Jesus' name means that you're asking in accord with who he is and what he's done. The, the thing that you ask, it, it fits It lines up with his will and his purposes. Our our dependence on him. Our ability to say, I cannot do this on my own. I need some help here. This is something we will do for the rest of our days. And Jesus will gladly answer those prayers and help us precisely because it brings glory to the Father. When we come in weakness and need, leaning into, pressing into Jesus' provision and Jesus' ability, then God gets the glory. And the Son's delighted to answer and to help. Which brings us to this meal that we're about to share. Think about this meal in light of this agenda that we've got for the rest of our days. This sacrament itself as as a continuation of all of these things, of, of growing in our knowledge of God, of going deeper in our belief, strengthened in our faith, the faith that does produce works, works that because of the full story that we have of the finished work of Jesus, works that will even surpass what he did on earth as we depend on him to work those works through us. We need this spiritual meal today to be strengthened and nourished for our agenda, just like we need to eat Three squares a day to be physically strengthened and nourished. Let's pray together. My Father, we praise you and we thank you for how you have perfectly revealed yourself to us through your Son. We thank you for the gift of faith that you have worked into our hearts by the power of the Spirit that we can believe any of this. We thank you that you're a God who does indeed reveal yourself to us. You're a God who wants to be known. You're not playing hide or seek with us. 
but you are revealing yourself to us, even now, through your word, through our being gathered together in worship, and you will reveal yourself further at the table. Lord, make us hungry for that meal. Make us desperate for it. Help us to be crying out for grace. Even as we would peel back the film on that little plastic cup, make us hungry. Grant to us the faith to find Jesus there, to be united to him in that moment that we might be strengthened by him. And we do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.